Well, hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the Nefesh Podcast. This is episode 26, and I am so glad that you're joining us. James Fowler used this phrase, relevant irrelevance, to refer to Mother Teresa's style of leadership. Now, that might sound bad, but it's actually a good thing that I'll be explaining in a second. And I've I've, over the years, as I've studied his work, especially as it relates to the stages of faith and faith crisis experiences, I've used a different term to talk about uh, the significant of the insignificance or the significance of the insignificant um, at, in a way to describe people or things that we might normally regard as being, you know, insignificant or irrelevant or unimportant. Whenever I think of those things, um, I, I tend to think of kids, not because I think they're insignificant. I actually think they're very significant. I am definitely a baby and kid person. I like animals and, and I think puppies and kittens are especially cute, but I love babies. I love toddlers. I just think that they are the cutest, funniest, naughtiest little creatures that, you know, God uh, gives us. And it is such a privilege to have kids to be able to raise them and care for them. And I just always, I don't know if it's my height because I'm almost their size, but I tend to notice kids wherever I am. Either it's because I'm a kid or baby person, or I just, I see them even in the midst of adults and uh, especially when they're getting into trouble, but when they're just there and I, I, I've, I've always liked to kind of say hi to them, especially if you ever notice where you, when you're around kids and they're with other adults, um, they tend to get, uh, not ignored, but unless they're really, really cute or really, really naughty and getting in trouble, um, they may not necessarily be noticed or especially if they're, I don't know, maybe four or five, six, they may not even be talked to, you know, other adults are busy talking to each other and, and the kids are just kind of there, maybe listening quietly. Or again, if you're, you know, like some kids, uh, I won't mention any names, like some of my nieces and nephews, you're running around getting into trouble. Right. But I, I love saying hi to kids in those situations. I love getting down on their level and, and giving them a high five or, or finding out their name and just the idea of acknowledging them in a world of adults, in a world where kids can get, you know, overlooked, um, especially if they're not the most, uh, again, the, the most noticeable or they're, you know, the one getting in trouble, they may be uh, overlooked. They may be not acknowledged. Um, and so I just love giving them attention, just, just letting them know that I notice them. Well, when James Fowler was referring to Mother Teresa, he was referring to her in what he, uh, in, in his sixth level, the, the stages of faith starts with level one up through level six. And he describes level six leaders. And this is not like a, you know, like some type of ambition to strive to be this level six or on this, this, um, faith stage of level six, that that's our ambition to grow towards. Uh, it's really just more of the progression of what happens as our faith grows and we become 
more like Christ. And he utilized the example of Mother Teresa, one who was so selfless, one who seemed to live a life as if she was born, uh, destined to, to give of herself to others, to, uh, to care for others in such a meaningful and powerful way. And he, again, he refers to her ministry and her style of leadership as a kind of relevant irrelevance. He says this in his book, Stages of Faith. He says, as she, Mother Teresa, traveled through the city, she became overwhelmed by the sight of abandoned persons lying in the streets left to die. She, Mother Teresa, felt a call to go to Calcutta, India, uh, several decades ago, early in her life and early in her ministry. And she, she spent uh, uh, so many years there in that one place caring for people uh, an incredibly poor part of India. She is known worldwide and passed away uh, back in 97, but has, you know, is an icon of the faith, of ministry, of the Catholic Church, of Christianity, of, as one who is just so selfless. And she went to India to care for those that others wouldn't. He goes on to say that, that some of these forgotten people were already having their not yet lifeless limbs gnawed by rodents. Under the impact of those grim sights, she felt a call to a new form of vocation, a ministry of presence, service and care to the abandoned, the forgotten, the hopeless. At this time in India, uh, especially back then, their uh, leprosy was such a common disease and it was taking the lives of so many Indians and they were literally left in the streets to die. There was no, there was no place for them. Leprosy is a contagious disease and you know, you just kind of cast them off as, as uh, again, there's no place for them. We only have a certain amount of resources. So they were left out into the streets to die. He goes on to say, quote, in a nation and a world where scarcity, referring to India, is a fact of life, where writers and policymakers urge strategies of triage to ensure that resources are not wasted on those who have no chance of recovery and useful contribution, what could be less relevant than carrying these dying persons into places of care, washing them, caring for their needs, feeding them when they are able to take nourishment, and affirming by word and deed that they are loved and valued people of God. That's what her ministry was. She took those who were dying, she picked them up off the streets, literally, and she created a space for them to die with dignity. And over time, obviously, as advances in modern medicine, uh, the ministry be, was able to grow and, and she was able to care for people, but at, but at its inception, and care for the living, but at its inception, she was caring, caring for the dying. A type of relevant irrelevance. What do these people matter? They're dying anyway. We only have a certain amount of resources. 
We only have a certain amount of, of people, time. We need to focus on those who have a chance to live. In fact, I, that's still true today in some emergency situations. If you go into a hospital that is overloaded and overwhelmed, they will triage. They will take care of those who are in most desperate need of, of help and those who don't need that help are, are kind of placed or pushed back. We, we have essentially the opposite way of responding. Um, if we know, if we know that they can be saved, we will do our best to save them. But if, if we think that they can't be saved, we might, we might allow them to, to, uh, we might turn our attention to other things or other people who we think we can save. If we come upon an accident or first responders come upon an accident and there's somebody um, who doesn't seem like they are, they are, that there is hope for them, they might turn to the person who they think has a hope or a chance of living. Well, in India, uh, even still today, but especially back then in the, the early 1900s and throughout the, the 20th century, it struggled to care for the, those who are in poverty and those who are dying. And so, and, and with India's caste system and uh, the lowest of the lowest, they're not even a part of the caste. They're referred to as the untouchables. They're the bottom rung. They're below the lowest, which is the servant class. They are, these, these people dying of leprosy would have been untouchable. You shouldn't touch them. They were considered unclean as a part of the Hindu belief system. And yet Mother Teresa, this little five-foot Catholic nun, devotes her entire life to ministering to people who seem to be irrelevant, no longer important, no longer significant. It reminds me of thinking about Mother Teresa and thinking about even kids Reminds me of the story in the Gospels where Jesus actually invites the kids to come to him, his disciples. And back in that culture, in that day, in the you know, the first century, in the common era, um, this was not uncommon for you to focus on just the men, especially if you're teaching. Back then, rabbis would only teach men and would only have male disciples, so it was very unusual that Jesus actually had female disciples, but you focused on who was the most important. You focused on the men. You didn't focus on women. You didn't focus on children, or at least not in certain situations. Children at a certain age would go to a type of, you know, Hebrew or Sunday school, and they learned scriptures, and they learned, but not in this scenario, and not with, a, with a, an esteemed great teacher like Jesus and not in a way where they would take prominence. Parents in this story in the Gospels were trying to bring these kids to Jesus so he would bless them. I just picture these babies and these toddlers, probably noisy, probably smelly, and people thinking, well, what good is this? They can't understand what he's teaching. They can't, you know, they're just gonna create problems and noise and distract us. And so the disciples, you know, they're doing what is culturally acceptable. They're telling the kids and the parents, hey, go away. Jesus has got more important people to focus on. But Jesus says, 
let the little children come to me. For to them, to such as these, belongs the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. I love how Jesus acknowledged those who were seemingly insignificant or unimportant. Those who couldn't pay taxes, those who couldn't pay his salary, those who couldn't give him anything. He cared for them. He cared for people regardless of their race, whether Samaritan, Gentile, Jew. He cared for people regardless of their gender, male, female. He cared for people regardless of their sin background, adulterers, Pharisees. It didn't matter. And he cared for people who were destitute, who were lost. The widow whose son, whose only son, was dead. Jesus sees this funeral procession of a widow walking with this funeral procession of her only son. Back in those days, if you were a widow and you didn't have any children, you were really lost. There was no social security. There was nothing. God commanded his people way back in the Old Testament that they were to care for the widows and the orphans and the poor. And yet by the time we get to Jesus, um, it hadn't been practiced in the Old Testament. That's one of the things that the prophets were uh, would rail about, would get upset over. You can see that in, in books like Amos. Not only was it practiced, uh, was it not practiced back then, it wasn't practiced in Jesus's day. And so when Jesus raises this widow's son back to life in the Gospel of Luke, he is not just restoring to this woman her son. He is restoring to her her, her life, her living expenses, her ability to survive and not have to beg on the streets. He restores her son back to life, gives her her son. When Jesus heals the blind, and those who were paralyzed. You know, remember back in the, that day, they didn't have healthcare like we do today or not, depending upon where you are. They certainly didn't have access to it. When you were blind or deaf or paralyzed or had leprosy, I mean, you were just pretty much left to your own. We so many stories in the New Testament of these beggars whom really should have been taken care of by the community were not. They were cast off, put to the side, put out of view, allowed to sit by the roadside and beg for food and money. And yet Jesus saw them. He cared for them. He saw the insignificant or people that we might think are unimportant or irrelevant. And he ministered to them. There's another great story from history of a, of, of a woman who was seemingly insignificant, unimportant in a lot of ways. She was uh, 
born a princess into one of the royal families in Europe, and uh, but at a difficult time in history in the late 1800s when a lot was changing, early 1900s, a lot of is changing in Europe. World War One is really often described as a as a family war, a family affair, uh, because you have so many of the royal families who were related. Uh, it's 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 actually very sad to even think of uh, the Russian family, the Russian royal family. The last czar or king of Russia was the cousin of the king uh, of Great Britain, and yet, and when he asked for help, the king of Russia he asked his cousin. In, in England for help. Uh, they refused and he, Nicholas, the Tsar, and his wife and all of his kids were killed, were shot and stabbed violently when Russia was being overthrown. There's the famous story of Anastasia who was thought to have lived or survived, um, but most historians debunk that and say, no, she in fact did die. And it's a tragic story. World War One and everything that was shaking all around Europe at that time, so much of what happened could have been avoided. Um, and there were many casualties. Well, this princess was born into a royal family, but she was born deaf. And though it's not quite the same as being born blind or deaf in the New Testament. Uh, things have advanced a bit, and she is born into a royal family. But, but being born deaf or having some type of disability or limitation, if you are in a prominent or wealthy family back then, especially in Europe, was still pretty bad. You were... Uh, she was not the firstborn, and so, um, you know, somewhere in the, in the line, uh, not really in the line of succession of anything, she was, but she was a princess. But um, it, at, for prominent families, wealthy families, royal families, you wanted to put your, your best face forward. You, you know, there were family members that you didn't talk about, that you didn't allow people to see or know about, that you could hide from view. We know the tragic story of uh, President John F. Kennedy Jr., the uh, United States, one of the United States presidents. His sister, Rosemary, one of his sisters, was uh, had some type of developmental disability. And because she acted differently, didn't quite act normal, quote normal, um, it was clear that she had some type of disability or delay, and so she was put into in, in a mental institution and even uh, underwent terrible, 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 terrible uh, surgery at that time that they thought somehow some doctors thought would help people uh, had part of her brain removed, a, a lobotomy is what's called, and uh, was forever different after that she was she was different and acting out and they didn't know how to help her and they honestly thought that they were trying to i think in some way they did think they were trying to help her but at the same time it's a lot easier to to put away these relatives and not talk about them and, and it did happen it still happens today but it it really happened in the 19th and 20th century as you're getting 
a lot of um, psychology is really becoming a discipline and people are beginning to study it. And so they're wanting patients to be able to, to study and do experiments on. And it's, it's a whole tragic scenario. Some good came out of some situations, but it's, it's a very sad part of history. Surprisingly, though she was deaf, um, she was able to actually learn how to read lips. And, and it's uh, one thing I, I saw said that she was able to read lips in like three languages. That's pretty impressive. And so, and her mom may have been a little tough on her, but, but felt like she's got to be able to survive and stand on her own two feet because you know, this is a rough world. And so I was really forced to, to learn how to read lips. I'm not sure what all in, went into that. If maybe nobody, um, like they had to really maybe force her. I don't know the details, but it was her mom really focused on making her be able to survive. And so she learned how to read lips. And as she grew up, she met a, a, a Greek prince one of the, uh, I believe, a brother of the the king of Greece at that time, met him, married him, and had five kids, amazingly. But at a certain point, and this is in the early 1900s, Greece was going through some, some difficulty, again, as other parts of Europe are, throwing off monarchies and kingdoms and wanting revolution and democracies and republic. And so... Her and her family, her and her husband and her kids, they had to flee uh, and go into exile from from Greece. And they had to, it was a sad situation. They had to live off their relatives. And so it was a very humbling experience for them. And it was during that time, and, and some people said, you know, she was always a little different. She was always a little strange. But it's, you know, just very possible that with her deafness, her inability to hear, that, that she... Um, you know, maybe created an inner world for herself, maybe had an imagination or um, maybe just did things differently than others. And so was always kind of different. But it was at this time that she really began to to uh, communicate that she was maybe having dreams or visions and and was very religious and began to have weird visions and dreams about God. And, and people thought, okay, this is not normal. We, we've got to do something about this. She didn't seem to be a danger to herself or others, but, but was just, again, just, just seemed to be, uh, acting unusual, talking strangely. And so, um, she went to a, a mental institution and she went voluntarily, went for a little bit, uh, maybe a year or two, and then checked herself out saying, okay, I'm better. Um, but not long after, she was sent back as she continued to have visions or dreams and weird uh, religious ideas and fantasies. And uh, this time she was taken by force. Uh, the idea of men in white coats literally came and dragged her off in front of her youngest child, her son, and took her by force to this mental institution she was at that point completely separated from her family. Her husband went off and lived his own life. Uh, his son, his daughters got married and his, um, his son went off and eventually joined uh, uh, the Royal Navy in Great Britain. And she 
eventually she was able to get out and check herself out, but her family in that moment uh, and even in the years after, she was not able to go to any of her daughter's weddings. They all got married while she was, she was either alone or in this institution. Her whole family, her whole world was ripped away from her. As if, as if she's not, she's not worth the effort or she's causing too much trouble. She's, she's too strange. She's talking nonsense. This is a respectable family. This is the royal family. We, we can't have this. Her husband left her. Her kids maybe not abandoned her, but they left. And her son eventually went on and lived his life. And she was never really reunited with him. Her husband never divorced, divorced her, but he was never back with her. When she got out of that mental institution, at a certain point, World War II had broken out and she was in Paris. She went to Paris where she lived in an apartment. And people knew her as, as a princess. And so I think that helped. Um, but as she was living there, in Paris during World War II, she came across uh, three members of a Jewish family that she knew. And as we know, during World War II, the Jews were being rounded up in all parts of Europe. Wherever the Nazis could find them, they rounded up the Jews for extermination. And we know that approximately six million Jews died in, the, in World War II in the Holocaust. Well, these three family members that she came across, she invited to live with her and she hid them from the Nazis until the end of World War II. These three people stayed with her in this apartment. I don't think she stayed there, but I think she came and checked on them. And I believe it was more than once that the, that the, uh, the Gestapo, the Nazi police, brutal Nazi police came and knocked on her door and she was able to use the fact that she was deaf as a deterrent from keeping them coming in. Maybe they didn't understand her. Maybe she pretended that she didn't understand them. And possibly the fact that she was a princess gave her some cachet, but um, the, the, she used her deafness. She used what had initially been a, a disability, a liability, a a deterrent, something that, that kept her from society, something that kept her away from society fully. She used that as a way to deflect and keep the Nazis out of her apartment and kept them from finding these three Jewish people. She saved the lives of these three Jewish people who were able to survive and live and marry and, and uh, uh, who were protected. She was la named later in 1993 by Yad Vashem, which is the, uh, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. Um, she was named by Yad Vashem as righteous among the nations. That's a term that is used for Gentiles 
who hid or protected or cared for Jews during the Holocaust. Her contributions by saving the lives of these three people were recognized years later after her death. And I love the fact that it was a disability that she had that again was initially something that was so hard for her that she had to overcome. She was able to use that to protect these people. Well, after this, she eventually becomes a, a nun in the Greek Orthodox Church and she devotes her life to ministry and she creates a center in Greece um, and uses uh, money that was sent to her by her royal family. I think even some of the royal jewels, she sold them off and used it to help care for people in uh, in Greece, whether the homeless or, or orphans, to care for people. She did that all the way up until about two years before her death, where um, in, in about 1967, she went to live with her son, whom she was taken from so many years earlier and hauled off into a mental institution. 1967, she went to live with her son. This woman, Princess Alice of Greece, was also the great-great-granddaughter, or the great-granddaughter of Queen Victoria, one of those, great or great-great-granddaughter of Queen Victoria of England. And her son became Prince Philip, the husband of Queen Elizabeth II, who passed away just a few months ago. This woman, Princess Alice, was the mother-in-law of Queen Elizabeth II, the longest living monarch in British his history, in England's history, just passed away in 2022. Her mother, uh, Queen Elizabeth II's mother-in-law, was this woman, born deaf, abandoned by her family, institutionalized, but who also saved the life of these three Jews and saved many other lives, ministered to other people in Greece during incredibly turbulent and difficult times. These two women, Princess Alice and, and Mother Teresa, both uh, probably in society today, we would walk past. If we didn't know them, if we didn't recognize their picture, we may not give them the time of day. If we don't know sign language and, and have a, you know, can't communicate with deaf people, we might, we might just think, oh, I, don't, I don't know how to communicate, and we might just walk right on. Mother Teresa, this small little frame, uh, this small woman, we might not even give her the time of day if we didn't even know her. And yet these two women saved the lives of so many people. And they reflected what the world might say, an insignificance about their own person, their own, their own outward uh, personage, we might, the world might look at them and say this, they are insignificant, unimportant. And yet they, in such a beautiful way, brought 
significance and relevance to so many lives. They both reflect a type of relevant irrelevance. They bring significance to the insignificant. They, like Jesus, remind us that every, every person from the smallest, the tiniest, the youngest to the oldest, to the one who cannot take care of themselves because they are so young, to the oldest who, or the, or the, or the person who is dying, that they are important as they are made in the image of God. And that every person made in the image of God has significance and value and worth. They are relevant. They are important. What these two ladies and what Jesus, of course, shares with us is our own significance, but also the significance of others. I love that Robert Mulholland, and I've shared this quote many, many times before, I love how he defines spiritual formation, that it is the process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. That my life, my spiritual growth, my worship, my prayer, my Bible reading, my spiritual practices, my every waking moment is not for my own progress or growth. It is not for my own sake. It is for God's glory and it is for the sake of others. May we be moved with that same compassion. May we feel that same sense of worth for our lives and for the lives of others. It is true that when we struggle to see our own worth, we can struggle to see the worth of others. And so may we find our value and our worth in God as reflections of his image. And may we in turn care for others with that same value and worth. May we project onto them and feel with them their own significance their own importance, their own relevance. May we live together caring for one another, putting others' needs first, showing the value of our relevance. And may that, may that be the way that the world knows us as John tells his disciples, or as Jesus tells his disciples in the book of John. People will know, Jesus said, people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. May, may that be the message that they see as we love each other. Well, thank you for listening to this week's episode, episode 26 of the Nefesh podcast. And I'll talk to you next time.